Spirit with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, September the 4th, 2013, and this is episode 1200 of the Survival Podcast. I have Sally Fallon, founder of the Weston A. Price Foundation, that I'll be bringing on in just a moment. Before I do that, I want to go ahead and take care of our sponsors and our housekeeping. Sponsor of the day number one today is Harvest Eating, the awesome chef Keith Snow. Last night I made just killer chicken wings uh, that had, among other things in the ingredients list, Chef Keith's roasted chicken seasoning along with my patented chili uh, chili garlic pepper oil uh, that uh, maybe one day I'll tell you guys how to make. But Chef Keith has great seasonings. He has an incredible podcast, a tremendous amount of videos. Chef Keith will teach you to cook seasonally and locally and how to make cooking a life skill. If you don't think cooking is a survival topic, try living on MREs and freeze-dried food without any creativity for a couple weeks, and you'll see how quick uh, cooking is very, very valuable to your life, whether times get tough or even if they don't. Check them out at HarvestEating.com. Next up today, herbs of a different variety than the one Chef Keith uses, Western Botanicals. Whenever I have any kind of an ache or a pain or anything that I think needs a little bit of attention, I always try to turn to the world of herbs first. And uh, in doing so, I haven't had to use a prescription over-the-counter medication, either one, in over 10 years. I haven't taken a drug. And uh, hopefully I won't be taking any anytime soon. And I think maybe once in a while a Motrin or something. And when I didn't have what I needed from Western Botanicals, what do I take instead of that? Uh, they have two great things, an anti-inflammatory and a pain reliever. The pain reliever is made with valerian, and the anti-inflammatory is made mostly with turmeric. And uh, the only way I wouldn't use that is if I didn't have it. And when I don't have it and I need it, I go to Western Botanicals, and guess what? They do. Now, let's say I need something. I don't know what it is, but I know I need something. I can call them up, and real people that really care about me and you will talk to me and tell me what I need, and I'll do that for you as well. If you can think of it, if it's herbal and it's legal, they got it. I mean, that's as, you know, as broad as you can get. And uh, what's really great about Western Botanicals is not only do they have this great selection, great pricing, great service, they have a great discount program. It's 50 bucks a year, and you get 25% off everything you order. If you use a lot of stuff like we do, that pays for itself. But guess what? If you're a member of my support brigade, you get it for the first year for free. That pays for your first year of MSB right there. And then you get it at half rate uh, in, in additional years if you want to keep it. So check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. And remember... Everything at Western Botanicals is either organically grown or wild-crafted. Next up, I want to remind you guys about um, Walking to Freedom. Please check out the Walking to Freedom forum if you haven't done so already. And remember, it's easier to rent a truck and make new friends than to continue to live in tyranny in an oppressive state like, oh, I don't know, Illinois, New Jersey, California, New York, uh, Connecticut, Massachusetts, all the guys on the naughty list. Check it out today, walkingtofreedom.com. Also want to remind you guys about the TSP Gear Shop. Some of you guys are new and you don't know. We have some cool TSP gear. T-shirts, patches, coffee press mugs, uh, all kinds of good stuff over at the TSP Gear Shop. We have Friends of the Gear Shop stuff in there as well. We do some things to help some really good friends of the show uh, to sell some of their stuff as well. So check it out today, tspgear.com. Uh, silver is for sale too, guys. If you go to the today's, uh, 
If you go to TSP Mint, it'll redirect over to uh, Coins for the Cause, and you can get our TSP Silver or any coins over there that you order will help support the show, including the Paradigms. Paradigms are available, 10th ounce silver, fractional silver, in rolls of 50, uh, for not much more than buying silver by the ounce in generic rounds. It's really great pricing. Mulligan Mint continues to deliver amazing value. Check it out today. Just go to tspsilver.com. You'll redirect over to the Mint site. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. You get discounts and special deals for people like Harvest Eating and Western Botanicals, most of our other sponsors, not all of them, and about 40 vendors in total. The discounts more than pay for the membership, along with $200 worth of free ebooks, every episode of Survival Podcast ever published, and... Once you're a member, if you want to, and you're a member of our forum as well, you can uh, display a TSP uh, MSB member badge. There's information on the forum of how you add that to your uh, signature if you want to do that. Uh, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters all qualify for a discount. If you email me before, not after you join the, the uh, brigade, and tell me about your service in one or two sentences with service discount in the subject line, I'll send you a discount code to thank you for your service. If you email me for that or any other reason, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Again, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. If you want to communicate with me, uh, the formula to do that is one word for Jack. So comment for Jack, question for Jack, something like that, and use that email address. It's better than Facebook. If you contact me on Facebook, you're likely to never hear from me again. Uh, or or uh, not not that I won't get back to you. Just I'll, you'll never hear from me in response is the way to say that. Sorry if it sounded like, if you talk to me on Facebook, I'll never. T no, I just mean... I probably won't get back to you. Forum messages, LinkedIn, all that stuff. I have the accounts. You know, I look at it once in a while. But if you want to communicate with me, I'm in the email several times a day to batch out my email. That's the best way to do that. Uh, before we get Sally on the line, I want to uh, continue with our new little segment where we look at a year in history, the year 1200 this time, because the episode's 1200. Uh, here's some events. Um, August 24th, in the year 1200, after touring an army through Aquitaine, which is in France, to assert his right to it, John of England weds a 13-year-old named Isabel of Anglumaine at Bordeaux. Now, remember, at this time, England and France are at war, as they spent most of recorded history, apparently. Uh, but here in North America during that year, the Iroquois invade modern-day Ohio from the north, Uh, while no one was really paying attention, uh, the Mongols defeat northern China in the year 1200. The University of Paris receives its charter from Philip II of France, um, and a rebel known as Ivanko is captured and executed by Byzantine general Alexios somebody. Uh, not really interested in that one. Um, I looked at the births and deaths, nobody that we would really know, and I was surprised somebody was missing. Yesterday we talked about Macardier. Macardier was a French provincial warrior from the 12th century and a chief mercenary in the service of Richard I of England. You remember he had a guy that, uh, that shot uh, an arrow, a crossbow arrow, that hit the king and killed the king of gangrene a few weeks later, flayed alive, and then executed. Um, well, there's nothing here about Macarjay dying, but Macarjay died in the year 1200. After Richard's return from the Holy Land, Macarjay accompanied him everywhere as his right hand, traveling and fighting by his side. Richard 
eulogized McCartier's exploits in his letters and gave him the estates left by Admir de Bianca, in, who died without heirs in around 1190. During the various wars between Richard and Philip August, Augustus of France, McCartier fought successfully in Berry, Normandy, Flanders, and Brittany. When Richard was mortally wounded at the Siege of Calais in March 1199, it was McCartier's physician who cared for him. McCartier avenged his death by storming the castle and hanging defenders and flaying Pierre Bassel, uh, the crossbowman who had shot the king, despite Richard's last acts pardoning the boy. So the king pardoned the guy that killed him. McCartier wiped him out anyway. Well, what happened to McCartier after that? He entered the service of John, ravaged Gascony, the city of Angers, and on Easter Monday, the 10th of April, 1200, He was assassinated while on a visit to Bordeaux to pay his respects uh, to Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was bringing from Spain a person I don't know. Uh, his murder was a man-at-arms employed by Brandon, a rival mercenary captain in the service of John. So he served his king well, <laughs> risked his life, avenged his king's death, immediately pledged allegiance to the new king, And a rival captain, a rival mercenary captain, had him killed so he could take his place. People ask, uh, a couple people asked in the blog, what does this have to do with the Survival Podcast? Why did we added this segment? So we can get some historical context that many of the things we think are unique to our world are not. Folks, this is the year 1200 we're talking about. With that, I'm ready to bring on our special guest today, Sally Fallon, founder of the Weston A. Price Foundation. Overall, it was a good interview. I want to prepare you for something. Uh, I was asked to discuss with Sally why she had, quote, and this is by members of our audience, attacked paleo diets, just attacked them. And I have to say that it is an accurate word by reading her articles. She says when I do ask her about it, she didn't attack anybody. I never said she attacked anybody, but it would have been hard for her to hear. I want you to get a lot out of this interview. I want to tell you that I think Sally is a wonderful person doing wonderful work, and I think we agree more than we disagree. When you hear me bring this up, you'll hear me eventually just end it and give up trying to explain some things, though. Um, it's difficult to have an argument with somebody you agree with who won't listen to you agree with them and won't let you explain some things to them. Unfortunately... That's what Sally did during this interview. It is only a brief period of the interview, though, and as I said, eventually I gave up trying to inform her. Um, I then gave her some factual information at the end of the show, which she still didn't want to listen to. Um, so I'm not sure why that is with such an articulate, intelligent, and switched-on person, but I guess some people get so blindsided by what they're trying to accomplish Uh, they, when they see somebody doing something similar but a bit different, uh, that person must be wrong. That's too bad, but I do hope you get a lot out of the interview. And, uh, again, I do think Sally's a great person and doing some great work. And with that, it's time to introduce her. Hey, Sally, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, thank you, Jack. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to have you on. Um, I've gotten more and more interested in the work of Dr. Weston Price over the years, Uh, especially with some of the things that I've learned about how some of the foods I don't eat are prepared a little bit differently. Um, and also looking at the indigenous culture work that, that Dr. Price did. Um, I have a copy of his book here, uh, and I talked about him quite a bit on the air, but I've never really done a like, 
this is who Dr. Weston Price was. So <laughs> maybe you could do that for us before we talk about okay. the, the the foundation and his name that you you co-founded. All right. Well, when we talk about survival, uh, you know, I really think the human race is in the eleventh hour as far as survival is concerned. We are, have escalating health problems, uh, escalating infertility and an absolute epidemic of problems with our young people today. This generation coming along is a really sick generation of children. So uh, my, in my opinion, and uh, a lot of pe- other people feel the same way, uh, we absolutely need to look at the work of Dr. Price and understand it. A lot of people say, oh, yes, Dr. Price, but they really uh, don't understand the key points or are not familiar with the key points. Let's put it like that. So who is this character? He was a dentist. He traveled uh, throughout the world in the 30s and 40s studying isolated traditional people, and he found 14 groups that exhibited superb health, and that's from the teeth to the feet, shall we say. Uh, beautiful, straight teeth and uh, no need for braces, keen eyesight, uh, uh, easy uh, fertility, uh, and they had healthy babies generation after generation. After all, being healthy is not just about how we feel right now. Uh, the, the test of health in a culture is how healthy the children are uh, that come along. Now, these cultures had no processed foods. They were, none of these cultures was a vegan culture. They all had animal foods. But the key point, the absolute key point, was the very high levels of vitamins and minerals in these diets. These were nutrient-dense diets, and particularly high levels of what we call the fat-soluble activators, vitamins A, D, and K. And these vitamins are not found in a lot of foods. The foods they're found in are certain types of seafoods like fish eggs, shellfish, fish liver oils, uh, you know, cod liver oil, oily fish, fish heads, which are a very important staple of the diet in many cultures. And then in the land animals, organ meats, uh, animal fats, uh, especially fats of animals like the pig, monogastric animals, uh, butter fat and egg yolks and cream uh, from pastured animals. When these animals are on pasture, the the animals will make vitamin K and vitamin A out of the factors in the green grass and they'll make vitamin D out of sunlight. So my take-home message is to be healthy. The, the key to a healthy diet is to include as many of these foods as possible in your diet. And that's a hard sell because... <laughs> it's all these, counter to everything. It's absolutely that the, counter. The, the people very, that spent the nine million dollars to turn the pyramid into a plate don't <laughs> don't have that message for us. They do not. The very foods that traditional cultures valued above all others for being healthy and having healthy children are demonized today, and we're being told to avoid these foods. We're supposed to avoid butter and cream and egg yolks because they have cholesterol and saturated fat, and a lot of people telling us not to eat liver because it has too much vitamin A in it. That's the very reason you want to eat liver, of course. <laughs> and um, the latest... But, but th- take, your, take, take your vitamins, but don't yeah, eat liver, right? right? Okay, yeah. <laughs> and um, the latest victim of this demonization is the seafoods, which we're being told are full of mercury and we shouldn't be eating seafood. So um, we at the Weston A. Price Foundation, our, our first job really is to dispel these myths 
and to show just how important these foods are. And I can tell you, people have told me all they did was add butter and cod liver oil to their diet and they already felt better. Now, we have a lot of other themes uh, that Dr. Price did not touch on, but we've added to our guidelines, and one is, as you say, proper preparation of grains. And there is this huge debate about grains today. <laughs> and we've always said grains that aren't properly prepared are toxic. But if you prepare them the way traditional people did, they are very nourishing. And almost all traditional cultures had some kind of grain or it's not grain, it's a carbohydrate food like uh, cassava, sweet potatoes, yams, and so forth. So we are not a diet that's just meat. We are a diet, we're a mixed diet, but we put a lot of emphasis on food preparation. Yeah, I mean, I live mostly, I would say, the most accurate way to describe the way that I eat and the way that I live would be of a, a paleo uh, concern. Um, I also do like to eat bread on occasion. I generally eat bread made from sprouted grains. Yeah. Um, well, you want what you want is sourdough bread because sourdough has been fermented. But I guess my 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 point about that is, as I've learned more about the work you guys are doing, I found more and more ways to include some of those it's those foods good. back into my diet. I mean, I did read an article, and I'm, I mean, I'm not you know, debating or anything. I'm just saying I read an article that you actually an article in a rebuttal to an article you wrote where um, I just have to say some of the things that you had said about paleo just aren't true. They were, they read more like the work of the doctor's eats from protein power plant or something like that, because a lot of people living a paleo life, I think, and, and what I'm trying to do is come back to the common ground here, have gone on that diet like I did. And had incredible results. I went from 283 pounds to 205 pounds without any real exercise or anything like that. And we're in multi-years of staying in this this range of weight and health. Um, and that just, you know, that works. But I think what happens is they turn away from all the processed stuff and, and they come to some misconceptions. And I think that we're in this world where everybody's been so lied to about our food supply that you get in like this competing camp world, and I, I don't think that's really the right place to be. And then I think people end up taking misconceptions about other things like, you know, paleo, you eat extra egg whites. That's Arnold Schwarzenegger in the 1970s. That's not, that's not the way most of us that are living a, a paleolithic-style life are living today. And I think there's actually a lot of common ground if we can clear the clutter because this indigenous culture research is the closest thing we have to the way people at that time probably did live. Well, all I can tell you is if someone who's interested in the paleo diet does an internet search, the first three websites they get are Wikipedia, Lauren Cordain, and Rob Wolf. And each one of these websites tells people to eat lean meat. That is the antithesis of our message. We say never eat lean meat. Traditional cultures never eat ate lean meat. You always eat meat with the fat. And you need to eat the organ meats, which are do you, do you know not appear in these books. Now, I understand. I understand that's where, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's where the confusion comes from. So you've got these Paleolithic people that are saying to eat lean meat. Now, yeah. why are they saying to do that? They're saying that because game meat is lean. And we know that those people ate those meats. 
But now, wait a minute. No, hold on, hold on, hold on. on. Now, let me, let me uh, answer that right now. You'll love, you love what I'm going to say. I promise you, you just have to give me 30 seconds. You're the guest. I'm going to give you all the time in the world to talk. You're going to love what I'm going to tell you. The very first thing those cultures did when they killed an animal was eat the organs because they, they spoiled the fat, and they had the most reserves of fat. And the, the confusion in that world lies with forgetting that they used 100% of the animal. And the, the, the leanest meat that would store the longest was more of a survival ration than what you lived on. Okay. okay. There's huge misconceptions here. They did not eat all of the animal. And we know from Stefansson, who lived with these people, that, first of all, they hunted animals selectively. They did not want lean animals. They hunted the older animals, which had a buildup of fat on the back. It could be as much as 80 pounds. And they saved that fat. They also saved the kidney fat. You could get up to 100 pounds of fat off of a an older wild game animal. Uh, the meat, they ate the organ meats. They rendered and kept the fat. And the meat that they kept, uh, they dried or smoked, and they always spread it with fat when they ate it. They never ate lean meat. The key food among the Indians was pemmican. What is pemmican? They, they made bag, leather bags. They pounded up the lean meat. They put that powder in the bags, and then they poured the fat in. That pemmican was about 80% of calories as fat. And it's a tremendous myth that they ate the whole animals. I had long discussions with an anthropologist who worked with the Australian Aboriginal people. He said if they killed a kangaroo that was too lean, they threw it away. And when a certain flower bloomed on a tree, that meant that this species of animals was fat, and that's when they hunted those animals. They always wanted the fat. There was no lean meat in these diets. If they ate lean meat, they knew it would uh, cause what they called rabbit starvation, uh, which may, where they'd get very sick. It hardly ever happened because they always saved fat. Uh, another typical dish of the American Indian was succotash. It was corn, beans, dog meat, and bear fat. It wasn't just corn and beans. It had fat in it. They put a great value on the fat. And my big concern about the paleo diet is this emphasis on lean. You should never eat lean meat. You should eat fatty steaks. If your meat doesn't have fat on it, then you add fat. Uh, you make a sauce or you put lard in your slow cooker or whatever you do. The big challenge of grass-fed meat is it's too lean. I'm not saying don't eat it. I'm saying you need to make compensation for the fact that it's lean. And this is my big concern when people lump Weston Price and Paleo together that uh, they say we're the same as Paleo and there's this huge fundamental difference between the two diets. Now, there See, are, hold on. I don't, hold on. I there, don't there are people who've come along and see that problem and call themselves Paleo and have written books and that's fine. But the number one message of the main Paleo writers is lean meat. Now, hold on. Now, listen, I am trying at this point to not have a debate. I'm actually trying to discuss this, and I'm actually trying to have a two-way informative discussion, and I'd, I'd like very much to do that. And I'd like to let you know there's this entire contingent of people, myself included, from the world of paleo that are that are all about fat being part of the diet. Well, that's I'd good. Also, I, that's good. I'd hold, just 
because you're being defensive and I'm not being aggressive. So that, that makes it difficult to have the conversation. I'd also tell you that you have to understand that people come into these lines of thinking and then they hit a spectrum and then they evolve over time. So even like the vaulted guru of paleo, Rob Wolf, has moved way more toward fats in the diet. Over well, he the needs year. to change his website then. I know what he needs to do is write website. a new book. Yeah. He needs to write a new book is what he needs to do. Well, he can change um, his website tomorrow. But, uh, well, he does a podcast every week. Mm-hmm. And the podcast has shown that evolution. Well, but it, I think it, it needs to be reflected in the website because when I go to that website, all I see is lean meat and no carbohydrates. And uh, just let me explain here the other problem. If you're not eating saturated fat, the body, our bodies need tons of saturated fat. We need them for our cell membranes. We need them for everything. And so if we don't, if we don't eat the saturated fats, then we need to eat carbohydrates because our body turns the carbohydrates into saturated fat. And, and there's plenty of traditional diets out there that are low in fat, but they have plenty of carbohydrates to compensate. And if you're saying lean meat and no carbs, that's where you really get into trouble. Now, I know that there's opinions and things evolve and so forth, but what we've done at the Weston A. Price Foundation, we just set out the rules. Here are the principles. And, you know, it might take a while for people to sort of internalize all those principles, but, you know, they're they're in black and white on our website. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to tell you that it's probably best for people that have uh, a methodology that they've designed and worked out to focus more on what they do than what somebody else does, because I can tell you that there's a lot of confusion back and forth between the two sides. You, you have no need to convince me of the value of fat in the diet. Uh, I'm a guy that do- doesn't turn down a piece of bacon anytime it's presented to me, and I've lost weight eating yeah, fatty it, meats. It does. Right? It, helps, it helps you lose weight, for sure. But I'm telling you that there's when when we go out and basically attack the methodology of someone else that has the same goal, we generally end up not accomplishing a lot. You know, um, I, I am not attacking anyone. I am not making personal comments about anyone. I'm not attacking people's appearance. I am simply explaining the differences. This is my role. And, you know... I, I can't do anything else but explain the differences. And if people don't like what I say, I'm, I'm very sorry. But there are fundamental differences between uh, these two diets. As I don't think anybody's appear. debating that. I don't okay. think anybody's debating that. I think what people do in the paleo world is point to Weston Price's work and say that that, that is an example of this type of eating working in certain ways and, and being a a historical record that it's not bad to eat meat. I don't think that anybody's saying Western Price Foundation's recommendations are paleo or the other way around. Well, I, I hear that, that all the you time. You seem to feel that they are. I, I hear that all the time. I hear the two diets in the same breath, and it is, you know, it is my obligation to point out the differences. That's all. I'm okay. not attacking anyone. I'm just saying there are differences between these two diets. Of course there's differences. Of course there's differences. I just think that some of the differences aren't really as different as uh, as they've been presented. 
um, especially fatty meats. Um, well, I mean, that's especially eating fatty meats, but you go to those three websites and it's lean, lean, lean. Well, and don't they, pay attention to it, Wikipedia because anybody can can. can I, I don't pay attention to to Wikipedia, <laughs> but a lot of people do, and yeah. that's how the diet is defined, and it is simply incumbent upon me to say that is not what we teach. We don't okay. teach lean meat. So let's 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 get because this was. This was, I only brought this up because it was brought up by listeners who are like, you know, ask her why she's attacking this stuff. And I think you got way more defensive than you needed to because I just wanted to have a discussion about it. Um, and I don't think you should be uh, defensive. I'm, especially not, I'm not being defensive. I'm simply you, explaining the differences between the two diets. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway. Would you just tell us why you started the Weston A. Price Foundation in the first place? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. So um, um, when uh, Dr. Anik and I finished writing Nourishing Traditions, we just felt that there was a need for an organization that provided accurate information on nutrition and showed the scientific validation of traditional foodways and just kept people up to date on things because the attack on healthy eating is relentless. The misinformation out there is huge. It comes from all sides. And we felt that we needed an organization that didn't have any ties to any industry that uh, it kept people up to date on what was going on. We also felt that there was a need to develop uh, good food sources. And that's why we set up our local chapter system. So we have over 500 local chapters. And if you uh, contact your nearest local chapter, they will provide you with a food list of what's in your area, and, and most people are looking for raw milk, of course, uh, but also uh, grass-fed meats, uh, you know, pastured eggs is something that people really are looking for. So uh, that's why we did that, and it's worked uh, beautifully. The chapters also have meetings and uh, potlucks and cooking classes and a lot of activities to help people who, you know, people are really struggling to get off the processed food and get onto a good wholesome diet. So that's what our chapters do. Um, you also wrote a book called Nourishing Traditions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you write that before you started the foundation? Yes, or after? yes. I started writing that in 1990. Uh, worked, uh, met Mary Ennig in the process. Um, thank goodness, because <laughs> I would have made a lot of mistakes otherwise. And she's an expert on lipids, and she was also the first scientist to warn the public about the dangers of trans fats. And uh, so we worked on the book together, and uh, once the book was finished, I turned my attention to start, excuse me, starting this organization. Um, and now you have a, uh, a new book out. It's called Nourishing Traditions Book for Baby and Child Care. Right. What, is the, what is the premise of that book? Well, I believe it is the um, the baby, you know, there's hundreds of baby and child care books out there. But this one has the most emphasis on nutrition and, you know, high fat, high uh, nutrient dense nutrition and starting before conception. So we advise uh, parents to start at least six months before conception. If you've been on a vegan diet or a standard American diet, that, that period of time needs to be longer uh, to build up your nutritional stores for having a healthy baby. And I'm encouraged by the fact that every month we have letters from very grateful parents with photographs of their beautiful babies 
We have this in our Healthy Baby Gallery uh, on uh, our website. It's going back uh, 13 years now. And uh, that's, you know, that's validation of what we're doing has inspired me to uh, write the baby book. There are also sections. Uh, it's, it's a long book. It covers a lot of things. There's sections on vaccinations, on newborn interventions, on different uh, styles of childbirth. There's a very large chapter on breastfeeding and uh, nourishing the infant, then feeding the child as he grows. And then the second half of the book is written by Tom Cowan, who is a family practice doctor, and it's uh, natural therapies for the childhood illnesses. Um, what are you? Uh, what, what are your? What is your feedback so far on a, a lot of those things? <laughs> well, I've, I've probably managed to upset a few people because of some of the things we espouse on the diet. Uh, wonderful, wonderful feedback. Uh, Tom Cowan and I are um, a little bit concerned about attachment parenting, about um, being too much in your child's life. We feel, of course, children need uh, a wonderful, supportive home, but children also need time by themselves and they need time to play, they need to discover things on their own. We are very concerned about introducing academic learning too young. Uh, we feel that those first seven years of life are absolutely precious in that this is the only time a child really knows how to play, imaginative play. And the child should be allowed to do that imaginative play without a lot of structure in his life. So that's uh, you know we've gotten quite a few comments on that because <laughs> it's not the uh, you, you'll probably get a lot of positive, yeah. <laughs> you'll probably get a lot of positive comments here. Um, I you, you you know I I don't want you to think we disagree other than I just disagree with your assessment of somebody else. Not really what your conclusions are. I think your conclusions are are spot on. I think we have a lot more in common than we don't. On this, I think we agree almost completely. I have a huge concern, not just for the Sikh society that we have, and we completely agree on that. I have a massive concern for the next generation of men and women. I don't feel they know how to live life. I don't feel they know how to solve problems. And I and I think part of it is the helicopter parent, that every yeah. single yeah. thing it's has to be managed. You know, they never can... Figure it out for themselves. Because <laughs> um, don't, they don't let them figure it out. And we have a generation that I I had been calling the teacup generation. Uh, yeah. And I've actually now ch changed it to calling them the China the China generation. I don't mean the country. I mean like the good China in your cabinet. Yeah. Because I think teacups are raising China plates. Um. Yeah. So like you know your teacup you didn't want it to get nicked but if it did it wasn't the end of the world but it was delicate but the china you really you know you only bring it out for certain people and, and things like that and to me what you're talking about has a lot to do with this problem with children without resiliency without yeah. problem solving capabilities yeah. And I think you take poor diet and that methodology and you end up with sick teenagers that don't know how to do anything and think everything's not fair when they don't get what they want. Well, children really need that first seven years to, to play. I don't mean that they can't go to nursery school or kindergarten sure. or whatever, but it's, there shouldn't be a big emphasis on academics up to the seventh year. Uh, they, they need to play. I'll tell you about a wonderful scene I uh, saw last year. We were at Joel Salatin's 
farm for a fundraiser for the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund, and he had a huge wood pile there. And all of the kids went to this wood pile, and it was so much fun to stand back and watch these kids climb all over the wood pile. They had organized themselves into teams. There was a fort. They were, uh, you know, um, having a little, um, a kind of a, a little battle between each other, and it, it was just so much fun and so a man. Man, who told them to do? Who, who told them to go do that? And of course, nobody told them. And they, no, they, they did it by themselves. Yeah, and it was <laughs> it was a sacred moment to watch this, and it would have been terrible for any adult to interfere with this. And I think we uh, unwittingly do that very often, and we interfere with the child's play and. Um, uh, you know, and and there's a balance too. I mean, if a child asks us a question, of course we want to answer it. But uh, we, uh, I mean, Tom gives the example of a woman who uh, wrote little cards to say what everything in the house was called. This is a chair, and this is a table. <laughs> I mean, that's just an extreme example. But we don't need to do that. The children will learn on their own, and and if they can engage in imaginative play, and if they're truly well nourished. Uh, they will just amaze us in what they do as adults. Uh, if they are not allowed that first seven years of play and good nourishment, uh, you often find that they're children all their lives, that they never mature because they never had that uh, full expression of their childhood. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that another thing you get with that is – problem-solving capability. Yes, yes, you do. Because since I didn't give you something to play, you had to figure out something to play. Right. And the imagination is the key to problem-solving, yeah. right? With, with Without imagination, you can't solve a problem. Take a person with no imagination, right? Give them a problem yeah. and see what happens. Yeah. So we talk a lot about child development in all of these different worlds and theories and thing but part of the development is to develop that imagination and that imagination is what leads to the ability to assess a situation and then be creative in how do we get past it and yeah. i think we've robbed our children i've never heard it quite put the way you did before where it, where it comes from the concept of not letting children have this unstructured imaginative play period in their lives but I think you're 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 quite accurate in that. It, it does seem so. And you know, maybe five years old is too young to have children sitting at a desk or in a circle for six seven hours a day. And uh, same, I've been saying that for years. And same goes you know. with sports. I mean, I'm not saying don't let them do sports, but I don't think it should be too organized. Uh, a sport like baseball, which has a lot of rules, I don't think should be introduced till they're seven. Um, the they they really need just I mean it's much much better for these kids to just be out kicking a ball up and down the street than uh, than in organized sports until they're a little older. Yeah, and I think the only thing worse than a structured sport is put them in a structured sport and then don't keep score. <laughs> well, I don't know it's about just, that. Yeah, no. you know, I I, I think soccer is a great sport for little kids. When my niece was like five six years old, she played soccer, and you know they all run around after the ball. No one knows what position they are. They just all know the ball is supposed to go that way. Right. One of them gets bored and chases a grasshopper. Yeah. And then it's really he, play. It's not something adults have imposed on them. It's really play. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, here's the ball, go that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you know, I mean, I do think there's a place for learning things like 
control and discipline, but I don't think you need that much control and discipline when you're five. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And I well, definitely don't think we need to time. be doping a child, right, when, when they don't conform to that discipline. Mm-hmm. So you get a kid by the time he's in second grade, if he doesn't sit down all the time, what's the solution? Give him basically mm-hmm. methamphetamine. Well, I do think children need some discipline. And I, there was someone who was very critical of my book uh, because I um, advocate what I call the timeout technique which is if a child is, uh, I mean, there's certain things you don't want a child to do. You don't want them to be destructive. You don't want them to, uh, you know, have temper tantrums, whatever. So when a child is misbehaving like that, the timeout technique is you put them in a chair in the corner and you say, turn on a timer, and then you ignore that child. You say, you, you sit there for however many minutes it is, three minutes. It's it's not you know corporal punishment. It's it's not nagging. It's not lecturing them. It's just saying time out. And I have seen uh, my daughter uses this on my uh, grandsons. Um, we use it on our own children as well. We just put them in the corner till they you know settle down. And she uses it on her grandsons. And I just I'll tell you this this system works beautifully. It, it's um, it's consistent. It's not hard, it's not cruel, but it teaches them self-discipline. So in addition to all of this, you also have a completely different enterprise called the P.A. Bowen Farmstead. <laughs> yeah, that's my, my crazy thing I did in late feathers. life. Yeah, <laughs> A lot of feathers in the hat. Yeah. So what, can you tell us more about P.A. Bowen Farmstead? Well, this was a dream of my husband and myself to have a farm, and we finally were able to purchase the farm. It's in Southern Maryland, and um, trying to make it into a model farm that's completely integrated, that is pasture-based, mixed species. Uh, we use biodynamic and organic methods, and we don't use any soy or GMOs in the feed. And the centerpiece of our farm is a dairy herd that we milk once a day, and we make uh, some very fine cheeses with the milk. We make raw cheese. The whey from the cheese feeds the pigs, and the pigs are in the woods, so we do woodlands pork. Uh, we also have meat birds and chickens that are pasture-raised that are moved every day, just like the cows are, and uh, so it's all an integrated kind of symphony. Uh, we've just put up a greenhouse. We hope to integrate uh, produce also into the, the farm, and we sell at our farm store and at some select farmer's markets, and our cheese is in a few restaurants. So I don't know if I've taken on more than I can chew or not. I I love making cheese. It's a very uh, serene, zen-like activity and uh, quite different to all the uh, writing and speaking I've done all all these past years. So it's it's a nice thing to gently ease into retirement. (laughs) Gently ease into retirement by starting a farm. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) Right. So, um, I mean, you you guys have been doing a lot of work with with, with uh, pastured animals. Um, what what is the kind of the feedback you get from customers that that, that purchase your livestock? There's a, a lot of gratitude. People are very grateful uh, that they can get the uh, animals that are fed the way we feed them. We have people who are so sensitive to corn, for example, they can't eat any corn fed meat or corn fed chicken or corn fed eggs, and we don't use corn. And we have people who are extremely sensitive to soy or simply want to avoid the soy. And we're very strict about that. We use field peas. We don't use soy. We we never have any soy in the rations of the animals. 
You know, that's been a struggle for me. I do my own pastured poultry, mm-hmm. um, and I'm, I'm raising geese, but right now I'm actually doing a foundational flock that I'll, I'll be using offspring for instead of buying goslings every year. So there's the, the geese we have this year are safe, and they do fabulous on grass. You have to give them very little supplemental feed to, to get very good growth out of them. But the chickens, especially with my pasture, as weak as it is right now because we just took over managing it this January, and this is, you know, it takes a while to rehab something that's been disabused. It um, does. It's fun to see it come along. But, you know, you still have to give grain. Even if you have good yeah. pastures, you still have to give grain. I'm interested in what you say about the geese. Our next project, uh, hopefully next spring, will be, uh, well, I think ducks. We'll start with ducks. But We'll, we'll get to geese in a second. I just wanted to tell you what I found very encouraging mm-hmm. is when I looked at doing this a couple years ago, um, and I just didn't really have the land for it, but I thought maybe I could pull it off. Um, and I started trying to find non-GMO, non-soy, uh, and non-corn chicken feed. It was almost impossible. Yeah. And I live in Texas. We grow, we can grow all types of things here. Um, I just, though, found a, a feed that's – and it was interesting to me because I had your your farm manager on like a couple weeks ago, yeah. and he was talking about some of the things he's feeding, and there was a lot of similarities. Um, sorghum is part of yeah. the makeup. Peanut meal. Yeah. peanut meal is a big part oh, of this. It's very okay. high protein. Uh-huh. And for now, there's no GMO peanuts for now. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, and and peas, uh, yeah. you know, cow pea. And that, I, I don't believe you guys, your feed mix is using peanut, but the sorghum and the peas were definitely bases. And I, I think that the birds um, seem to be doing very, very well. And I'm running uh, Freedom Ranger broilers, and they're – uh, they're at three weeks. They're close to as big as any Cornish cross would be on this oh, stuff. And they run like crazy. We have a, we have a 16 by 16 chicken tractor open top and we put a tarp over it, uh, on one end and we had to push the tarp up with a pole. Cause even though it was three and a half feet high, these three-week-old birds were climbing up on the tarp and using it to get out of the chicken trap. <laughs> and I've just never seen a, a you know a, a, a broiler chicken with this much energy. But I don't think we'll get the breast size out of them. But I get I got off on a sidetrack because I love what we do here. Um, my big thing was the fact that it's getting easier to find feed and do this type of thing. Have you guys? had challenges finding feed? Yeah, oh, we definitely had challenges. Uh, we actually have not been able to get the cow peas yet. That is the indigenous legume for the south. Uh, but we do have a farmer who planted 20 acres uh, this spring, so we'll see how we do there. We, okay. can, we can get the local sorghum, we get local barley, but our uh, peas, our, our field peas, are coming from Saskatchewan, so I wouldn't call that local. No. But uh, you have to have the legumes in there, or you just it's not economical to do. Now, I'm buying pre-mixed feed, so it's all cracked and stuff like that. I so see. when you guys get a hold of this stuff, because a, a, a pea is a pretty hard thing. Yeah, we, we have a grinder. That? We have okay. a grinder, and we um, we keep our costs down by buy, buying them whole. We grind them, and then uh, Mike has different mineral mixes that he that he uses. But one thing I can say now: we don't hatch our own poultry, but we ha- we breed our own cows and pigs. We do all our breeding of those two species on the farm, and um, we've had wonderful fertility. Um, 
I don't think in two years we've lost more than a couple of baby pigs, and we've yeah. only lost two calves that were twins born, stillborn, but all our other calves have lived. So uh, I talked to a, a guy doing raw milk. He says he can expect a death of 25% of his calves. Mm. So um, I, I think uh, getting the soy out of the ration is really key there. Yeah, I don't think that there's really any case to be made for anything bovine eating soy. Um, the two worlds apart where they're indigenous. Um, I, I get, well, I guess there's some water buffalo over in that world, but it just doesn't seem like what those animals prefer. Now we were talking about geese. Here's my experience with geese. I got eight Toulouse geese this year. Um, and they maybe went through one bag of feed when they got in. They were about double the size of a day old chicken chick. Um, they were 12 pounds each in 12 weeks, and they were almost 100% grass. I mean, they went through, like I said, a bag of feed, and they ate less grass or less feed every week uh, relative to their weight. Well, they, that's encouraging. Uh, yeah. Like the first two weeks, they were into the feed because they were at such an accelerated growth rate, and they could only get so much grass. By the time they were three, four weeks old, man, they would leave the feed until there was no grass, and if you ever have a problem with this Russian thistle or prickly lettuce, they would literally run around the pasture and find it and eat it to the ground. Really? Oh, that's yeah. exciting. Yeah. And do yeah. you have a pond for your geese? I don't even have a pond. I have such rocky subsoil uh-huh. that's difficult to do here. We're uh-huh. trying to figure out a way to get one in. I have 50-gallon stock tanks distributed throughout the property. Mm-hmm. I put them where I want fertility. Um, yeah. You give the geese a couple days, and they give you fertility in the stock tank. Yes, and then you sir. dump the fertility onto the plants, yes, and then sir. you fill the tank back up. Yeah. And that's oh, – it's good. not as easy to manage, but honestly, I only have a three-acre property, so yeah. it, uh-huh. it works pretty well. Um, but the growth rate – and uh, my, my buddy Ben Falk up in Vermont did geese this year. We both come to the agreement there's nothing that you can create a meat yield with faster on grass than, than, than geese. geese. Well, that's and, and you're going to have tons of fat. I mean, goose fat oh, yeah. is legendary as a cooking agent. Yeah, the um – the natives really prize the, the ducks and geese for their fat. And ducks, I think, are in some ways easier. In some ways, you will have an easy time with geese or ducks because you have enough of a slug snail population. Oh, as dry as I am, you have to I feed them see. a lot more. Uh, oh, interesting. Well, we'll see how it goes. So that's next yeah. year's project. <laughs> Anyway, um, you, you, you are running a grass-based farm. That's yes. primarily what you're yes. doing. Yes. What, what advantages are there of that, not just in the product, but for the farmer? Well, you create a beautiful, fertile landscape. And the one thing we've seen with this process of managed intensive grazing, moving the cows every day, is that our pastures, which were very poor to begin with, lots of bare spots, not much uh, diversity, have become luxuriant and supportive. Uh, of course, um, pastured beef and pastured dairy is, you don't have all those feed costs. You just, we just give them a little grain at milking time. So it is a very economical way of raising your animals too. But most importantly for the dairy products is they will be very good sources of vitamins A, D, and K, the fat soluble vitamins. And our rallying cry is remember the activators, these three fat soluble vitamins, which Dr. Price called activators. And uh, that's uh, what we're trying to increase in our food, in our milk and cream and egg yolks and butter fat and chicken fat and 
pork fat and uh, the organ meats of the cows is we want to maximize these vitamins. And we do that by pasture feeding. One of the, my biggest struggles with finding stuff around here is finding raw milk. Um, you will not find raw milk in a conventional store in the state of Texas. You can buy it. People can sell no. it, but you will never find it on well, a store. Well, it's illegal itself. to sell in a, in a retail store in Texas. It's legal in other yeah. states. But if you go to realmilk.com, uh, you will find a list of people providing or selling raw milk in Texas. It's, it's a burgeoning new industry in Texas, as it is in all states. And uh, if you can't find something close to you, then try your nearest local chapter, and they may be able to find one a source for you that's not listed there. Yeah, because, I mean, my biggest problem is I can find it, but it's all a good 40-, 50-minute drive to, to pick up, you know, yeah. a few gallons of milk. Yeah. Um, and my other, like, just the thing that drives me crazy is when did when did the concept of zero-fat yogurt come into existence? <laughs> no. I, I don't believe that if it's zero-fat, it is, in fact, yogurt. Um, so this, it, this is what we have, all these low-fat foods. Now, in a sense, we don't – and here, here's what happens. So somebody thinks they're being good and they're eating nutritious diet and they eat lean meat and, and low-fat yogurt and, you know, everything's low-fat, low-fat. And then by 9 o'clock at night, they're absolutely starving for fats. And they go to the freezer and take out a half a gallon of ice cream and eat the whole thing standing up right there at the freezer. They're so, so uh, you know, so uh, um, craving uh, these fats. And my uh, comment to that is, you know, we obviously need these fats. Uh, why not just eat them throughout the day? Have some butter with breakfast and some butter with lunch and some butter with dinner, and then you won't crave that ice cream. You won't even want the ice cream. And if your diet is causing these cravings, you need to go back and, and look at the diet because we've had so many people report to us when they really went on our diet and got these uh, nutrient-dense foods, started taking their cod liver oil, eating plenty of butter, the cravings for all the junk food went away. You know, when I first went on to this way of eating, and when I, I'm coming from the paleo that eats fat, I just okay. leave it at that so we don't go back into a debate. Yeah. When I started doing this, I made a decision that I would never be hungry. And I would eat, like for breakfast, like four eggs yeah. and a slab, yeah. a slab, a whole freaking slab. My wife might get two pieces out of a vacant. And then I would eat lunch, and I would eat like a piece of leftover ribeye steak with a salad, and then I would eat dinner. And now, after years of doing this, I literally must force myself to eat. And there are days that it will be like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I'll be like, I'm going to throw some leftover steak and eggs in the frying pan because I haven't eaten anything yet today. Yeah. Now, that that is one side of it. The bigger side of this is my wife can tell you that prior to this, if I had gone that long without eating, the nicest way to describe my demeanor would have been an atomic butthole. <laughs> I would sweat. Yeah, yeah. I would shake. Yeah. I would have agitation. I'd be like, i got to eat now. And I have to say I haven't had an episode like that for about three years with one exception. And it came on a day that we were traveling and out of town and we went to a Cracker Barrel and I ate biscuits and gravy and chicken fried steak. Yeah. And the next day I was a disaster. Yeah, yeah. I and I think it. that if you tried to do what I did without fat as being part of it, that would never happen because it's so satiating. Yeah. yeah. It, it, you're, you, you, you will not – and people say, well, you'll eat too much of it. Well, if you don't 
wrap it in a giant pancake, you won't eat a stick of butter. Yeah. It is yeah. self-limiting in of itself. Well, the fat um, regulates blood sugar, so you don't have the blood sugar roller coaster. You have nice, uh, even blood sugar. And I've had people tell me when they first gave themselves permission to eat fat and went on our diet, they actually overdid it. Well, they didn't overdid it. They just couldn't get enough fat. They had two or three months of gorging on fat. They gained weight during that period. But once they, that period ended, then they just felt like eating moderate fat, and they started to lose weight. So there's, um, you know, some people are just so deficient in fats that they eat uh, t- huge amounts of it uh, for a while. But it is self-regulating. Uh, unlike carbohydrates, which is difficult to regulate, uh, once you've had enough fat for your body, your body's needs for fat are satisfied, then you don't just don't want any more. See, my my theory is that when you're eating these diets devoid in fat, you're nutritionally starving. You absolutely so are. Your yeah. body will turn on the eat signal. Yeah. And then you'll eat and eat till you can't. You, you're literally bloated. I can't fit any more food in. But as soon as the as soon as the the the, the digestion takes enough to leave more space, the eat signal goes back on, and the body's saying eat, eat, eat. And you're 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 eating four times the calories you need, but your body's triggering you to eat more. Mm-hmm. Coupled with the fact that I think high amounts of carbohydrate and high amounts of sugar are extremely addictive. And I think that a lot of times when people come off of that diet. They have what could only be described as a drug withdrawal type of situation. They feel like crud, and then they say, "Well, see, this is bad." And I think sometimes it's like, "Okay, look, you got to get, you got to get through it, and maybe it'll take a week or two. Um, and what you see with that often is it, it looks very much like a drug withdrawal. Like if you if you take heroin every day, right? It's not good for you, but it'll make you feel good. And if you stop taking it. You will feel bad for a while, but it's still the right thing to do, if that makes sense. Uh, one thing I do need to point out here, though, and I mean, this is uh, a high-fat, reduced-carb diet is what works best for most people in the West. There's no doubt. Mm-hmm. But there are traditional cultures that have very low-protein, low-fat diets and high-carb diets, and I'm thinking of some of the African diets. But the protein and fat foods that they're eating are extremely rich in vitamins A, D, and K, uh, things like shrimp paste and dried fish and, you know, these are not foods that we like to eat, fish head soup. Um, and they are preparing those carbohydrates by a fermentation process. So it can be done, but it is not the type of diet that appeals to people in the West. But if you go online and read my article on the African diet, uh, you can you can see some of these. Um, they, they are, there are diets out there that are high-carb, low-fat, but um, there's some real important buts uh, to to what I'm saying. I think one of the buts is most of the people living on that diet are not doing so so much by choice, but more by necessity. Well, that's that's what their uh, environment provides them, and uh, we have a lot of African friends here in Washington, and, and I've asked them, you know, what did you eat growing up? What kind of meat did you eat? They said, we never ate meat. We couldn't afford meat. We ate frogs and insects and little fish and shrimp paste. Um, and mostly they eat carbohydrates, and they're beautiful-looking people with gorgeous teeth. Uh, one of the reasons they have good teeth is because the fermentation of the carbohydrates produces vitamin K. So mm-hmm. they're really getting all those fat-soluble activators, and I, I come back to this point. If the activators 
are plentiful in the diet, vitamins A, D, and K, uh, then we don't have to worry so much about these macronutrient ratios. They, they kind of work themselves out. If people want to learn more about eating this way and food preparation uh, methodologies and things like that, how would they find a chapter uh, in their area? Well, go to WestonAPrice.org, W-E-S-T-O-N-A-P-R-I-C-E.org. Uh, this is a huge website, and it can be a little uh, intimidating. <laughs> but the first thing I would suggest is you do the tour. On the right-hand nav bar, it says take a tour. And uh, just go through the articles on the tour. And then also on the right-hand nav bar, it says find a chapter. And hopefully there will be one near you. There, As I say, we have over 500 chapters, so there should be uh, one that you can find. And I have to say some chapters are more active than others. Sure. Uh, the basic requirement for the chapter is to keep a food list. Uh, that's some some chapters. That's all they do. But other chapters are extremely active and have monthly meetings and so forth. So um, I can't guarantee you'll find an active chapter near you, but you probably can find a chapter near you. We, well, I was about to wrap up, but I, I realized we lost over something with the fermentation. Mm-hmm. Um, for adding fermented foods to my diet was something I did right about the same time I, I changed the way I was yeah. eating. And I did that because, well, one, I like it. Um, and then two was I realized that every traditional culture, and I don't just mean, you know, Bushman-type cultures or remote cultures. I mean every traditional culture, Scandinavian, uh, Hispanic, every traditional culture has at least one major fermented food. Germany has sauerkraut. Yeah. Uh, Mexico has escabeche. Um, and, and then I started doing research into the positive actions of the lactobacillus bacteria that come along with that. And to me, it's something that every person should be, you know, my wife's like, I don't like the taste of anything fermented. And you're like, eat a spoon of it a day. You know, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and you're absolutely right. Every every traditional culture on the planet has at least one fermented food, and sometimes many many fermented foods and beverages. There were fermented beverages. In fact, this is what was often done with the grains: uh, was to uh, make a fermented, bubbly, sour porridge. And these are an acquired taste. They're not something that Westerners like to eat, but they're extremely nutritious. Yeah, and you can get beer out of that. <laughs> yeah, and, and they were slightly alcoholic too. So yeah, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. These people, a lot of them had alcohol. They also fermented fish, uh, meat, and not just vegetables and grains, but they almost anything can be fermented. And the Eskimos were um, they ate lots of fermented fish, and in fact, that's how they got their calcium was the softened bones of the fermented fish. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's why I have my little gr- beef with you know be trying to find you know whole milk based yogurt because I, I one I like to make my own yogurt and you need whole milk to start with but you, you know um, one of my favorite things to do with yogurt is to make like a yogurt cheese where you just basically drain the yogurt. Yes, yeah, that's delicious. And, and yeah. that is just a fabulous thing, but it's not really yogurt cheese if it comes from low-fat yogurt. The Weston A. Price Foundation publishes a shopping guide, and uh, we um, update it every year. It gets bigger and bigger every year. We publish, you know, we have our guidelines in there and uh, what brands we recommend. 
And a lot of these foods can be ordered over the Internet. So, um, yeah, if you become a member, you get that shopping guide with your membership packet, but you can just order it. It's just $3. And right now we're developing the shopping guide into an app, uh, which should be launched next year. And it will be an interactive app, so you can post where you've found different products and um, suggest additions. So we're very excited about the shopping guide. Could you talk real quick as we wrap up here about what membership is, what it costs, what's the benefit of becoming a member? So membership is $40 a year. It's really a subscription. You get a subscription to our journal, which comes out four times a year. It's 25 for students and seniors. And you also uh, get our email alerts. Uh, you get uh, reduced um, reg fees for our conferences. We have three conferences a year. And you just become part of our family, uh, part of our Weston A. Price family. And you support the work we do. We are supported by uh, almost entirely by memberships. And uh, we have no ties with industry or any of the supplements or any of that. We are completely independent. And the only way we can do that is through memberships. Real quick, I want you to talk about something, because I know you and I are pretty much in agreement on staying away from soy. Yes. Yep. Could you could you just because I get people that just can't believe that because we've been so reinforced that soy is the wonderful thing for everybody and it's great and I mean the GMO thing alone is just a huge it's almost impossible to find it without it so that's a whole reason by itself but yeah. even if it wasn't even I, if it's not I, GMO, I think that we yeah. have we do have some disagreements and I think that it's good that we have disagreements because you don't completely agree with me and I think we agree here so. Why do you say to stay away from soy? Well, we are the number one voice warning people about the dangers of soy. Soy is a toxic plant. The FDA has a poisonous plant database, and there are 250 or more entries on soy in the poisonous plant database. Uh, it is um, very high in plant types of estrogens. These cause infertility, as, um, mm -hmm. um, endocrine disruption, and they are thyroid inhibitors. They cause thyroid disease. Soy has a lot of enzyme inhibitors that make it extremely hard to digest. It is as high in oxalates as spinach, and people are eating a lot more soy than they're eating spinach. It's extremely hard to digest. Uh, it's just a witch's brew. Um, it's uh, The soy infant formula is very high in fluoride, uh, which mm. causes all sorts of problems. It's high in manganese, which is toxic to the brain of infants. So it is just um, a food to be completely avoided. And you may ask, why is there this push to get us to eat all these products with soy in it? Well, here's why. 80% of the fast food in this country, the kind of food that you and I avoid, is made with soybean oil. And when they press that bean to get the oil out, there remains a toxic residue, which is high in protein. And the industry has figured out how to isolate that protein. It's called soy protein isolate. And then this is the base for all of these uh, fake soy products. Uh, they also use the soybeans, the whole soybeans, to make soy milk and things like uh, tofu. Uh, but it is just, it's the bean that's being grown. It's being pushed and there is a checkoff. So every bushel of beans that's sold, they've got a dollar to uh, promote soy with. So there's mm. a tremendous push for it. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's one of the biggest things people need to get out of their diets. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, uh, yeah, I, I think we completely agree there. And I appreciate you being on the air today. You want to give people uh, the, 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 the websites again where oh, people okay. can learn more about the Farmstead and Weston A. Price Foundation? Uh, okay. So Weston A. Price Foundation is WestonAPrice.org, W-E-S-T-O-N-A-P-R-I-C-E.org. Our farm, if you want to see what we're doing, is P-A, <clears throat> excuse me, P-A Bowen Farmstead. Uh, dot com, and I also want to point out uh, my website, which is New Trends Publishing, N E W T R E N D S Publishing dot com, where I have all my books and DVDs. Cool, and I, I, I was going to get to that because uh, you have your two books out, and you have some DVDs, and um, they're probably available on Amazon. But they I always are, ask yes. authors if they sell direct because it's generally better. Uh, for the author, and I think authors should be compensated from the work. So that would be the best for people if they want your books to get them from that site. Uh, either way, you know, I realize it's easier on Amazon, and, and truth be told, I make the same amount whether it's sold okay. on Amazon or, or from my website. So um, if you want to do Amazon, that's fine. If you want, we try to support you want cases, around here, and I know. Sometimes that's not the case. That. You know. If you want case, cases, if you want a case of nourishing traditions, uh, then you would need to go to New Trends Publishing. Well, hey, Sally, I appreciate you being with us today and uh, sharing all your knowledge with us. Well, thanks for having me. Good luck with your geeks. <laughs> thanks a lot, and okay. uh, we'll do that. And this has been Jack Spirico today along with Sally Fallon, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Nobody up there cares.